What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I am your host, Israel Johannes. Now, there's something that you should know when it comes to broadcasting. We're not perfect. Anyone who says they are is lying to you. But anytime you do make a mistake, you just kind of have to own up to it, especially in the control room when the audience can't really see you. They don't know who's making the graphics. They don't know who's doing the replay. You just own up to your producer and your director and everyone else in the control room and you say, that's on me. I'll get it right the next time. And so why I bring that up is last week when I was talking about the Oklahoma City Thunder, I had mentioned that last season they had the worst field goal percentage in the restricted area. But for some reason, I said the Pelicans did. Don't know why, because I was talking about the Thunder for five straight minutes, but I just said Pelicans. I wasn't trying to lie to you. It's just what came out of my mouth, and I didn't even catch it in real time. I only caught it after the fact. Unlike some other story you might have heard within the last week, these errors are not intentional. But when they happen, you just own up to it. You say, that's my bad. You move on and you get it right the next time. So just so we're clear, last season, the Thunder had the worst restricted area field goal percentage. I will actually reference that later in the show. The main thing to know when it comes to bouncing back from an error is what at least what everyone in the control room tells you. The best thing you can do is to shake it off because you don't want that one error to be clouding your mind and your judgment and have it cause you to screw up again. That's what makes it worse. The best people who face adversity in this business or in any business are the ones who can take a hit to the chin say that, that, that it's my bad, get up, move on, and try their best to be perfect from that point forward. So let's say I have a wrong number in one of my graphics early in the show. There are two different paths that I can take after that. I can either let it derail the rest of the show where I'm overthinking about everything else I've done past that point. Or I can say, I'm going to brush that off, move on, and focus on getting everything from this point on correct. More often than not, the audience is not going to catch a slight error. Those in broadcasting who do it all the time are going to know. But then even those who are outside of that network might not recognize that it's an error because it's more internal. It's not the end of the world. You still have to move on. A show still has to be done. So that is the main priority whenever you run into an error of some sort. Now you do your best up until the time you get on air to mitigate those errors. But from time to time, things slip. You can't cry over spoiled milk. You just have to move on. And when athletes do things like this, right, they'll take, they'll have a mistake, 
And then the best thing for them to do, let's say they miss a free throw in clutch time, right? That doesn't give them the mentality that they should just sulk over it and then miss the next four free throws. What if they make the next four and then they don't have to worry about that? The result for them at least is binary and wins and losses. Broadcasting doesn't have that luxury. It's more subjective, but the mentality is the same. You just have to get up, move on, and be better the next time. With all that being said, let's break down everything that's happened in week four in the NBA for the Mavs, the Pelicans, and the Thunder. Let's start with the Mavs in this segment. Since the last episode, there have been three games for the Mavs, November 15th at Washington, November 18th at Milwaukee, and then November 19th at home versus Sacramento. And in those games, the Mavs ended up going one and two. So against the Wizards, they won 130 to 117. (laughs) That game felt like it was over in the first half, but Let's, uh, let's break down what we have in the notes of this game. Tim Hardaway Jr. dropped a game-high 31 points off the bench. And how the Mavs even got a lead so big in the first place was because they exploded in the first quarter. And that will get broken down. That following Saturday at Milwaukee, they lost their first clutch game this season. 132 to 125. Kyrie dropped 33 in the second half, combined with Luka for 74. But the Bucks came back to win in the fourth quarter. And then the following day, the Mavs lost to Sacramento, second night of a back-to-back. First time this season that the Mavs have had back-to-back losses. Credit to Sacramento, they shot the lights out. So let's talk about all that stuff. Now, how would I present these stats to you? How would a producer or a graphics AP present the stats in a traditional broadcast? Look for trends compared to last season. We're actually going to talk about the Bucs' defense last year compared to where they are now. The points of contention from the last several weeks, from the last month, rebounds, threes, free throw percentage, second chance points, paint points, fast break points, clutch games, Not all of these are going to get addressed, but there are a couple of them that made more of a difference this time around, and so that will get broken down, and then establish the new trends and identify new and or recurring problems. That way we can demonstrate the current identity of the team. I've said this every week so far, and I keep saying it again, once a pattern has been established, it's it's important to continue looking at it to see, is this causing wins and losses? Is this the main factor into the result? So first off, the Mavs and the Wizards, what stood out in that game? The Mavs had a blistering first quarter, scoring 41 points. Entering this game, the Mavs averaged 28.9 points per game in the first quarter, and that was 12th in the NBA blew right through that average by 12. 
they shot 15 of 25, which was 60% from the floor. From two, they shot nine of 13, 69.2%. And then from three, they shot six of 12. Luca and Tim Hardaway Jr. each had 13 points, led the way for the team. Derek Jones Jr. added nine. So they had good scoring from that trio early on. The Mavs out-rebounded the Wizards 13-5. to Remember, rebounding had been an issue for the Mavs all of last season, and whenever Derek Lively is not on the floor, the Mavs tend to have issues rebounding as well. So the fact that they out-rebounded the Wizards by eight, of course, they don't have Kristaps Porzingis anymore, is a testament to the Mavs' improved ability on the glass. They also had more assists than the Wizards 8-5, to And when you have eight in the first quarter, that means you're on pace for 32. It doesn't always end up being accurate in terms of if you have eight in the first quarter, you'll always have 32. However, in this game, the Mavs actually finished with 32 assists. And that is a high, not the highest mark, but that is a high mark for them once they cross 30 assists. And the Mavs also scored six points off of three Wizards turnovers while Washington was held to zero points off of two Mavs turnovers. Efficient. Always good to outscore your opponent in the miscellaneous categories. Another thing to note about this game as a whole, three Mavs scored 20 or more points, and six Mavs scored in double figures. It was the third game this season with three 20-point scores, and the Mavs are 3-0 this season in those games. They started 1-2 in the first three such games last season and finished 9-14. Sounds odd. It just meant that for some reason, three guys scoring 20 was not, the, was not a factor in winning games last year. But as of right now, they're undefeated. It was also the third game this season with six or more double-digit scores. This year, the Mavs are 3-0 in those games. And last year, they also started 3-0 in those games, but finished 8-6. Now, with all of that, you look at Washington's box score, and you'll notice... The Mavs allowed eight double-digit scores for the first time this season. Normally, when you have that many players on a team score 10 or more, you're bound to lose the game. The Mavs blew them out in the first quarter, first half. This game was out of reach pretty early on, to the point where it didn't matter what the Wizards did in terms of scoring. And so that led the Mavs to be 1-0 this season when allowing eight double-digit scores. Whereas last season, they were 0-3. Now, this is not a trend that I would like the Mavs to see continue. It's not like if they continue to give up eight double-digit scores, they'll be successful. No, that's not what this means. That is not a recipe for success. It's just something to know Obviously, certain games will play out in different ways, but... And then the other thing to keep in mind is that when you're in garbage time, you're going to have more guys score in a more balanced fashion. 
So it's not emblematic of any issues that the Mavericks have. However, it can be a point of contention down the line when things get in the clutch and you have eight opponents in double figures, then it can get a little tricky. Then you can start looking at your defense and say, we need to fix that. But for now, celebrate the win. Move on to the next game. A recurring problem, though, before this game, going into this game, and now in this game, the Mavs shot 17 of 29 from the free throw line. That's 58.6%. Last year, the Mavs had nine games shooting below 60% free throw percentage, which actually tied the most in the NBA with Denver of all teams. The Mavs ended up at three and six last year in those nine games. When you don't shoot free throws well, you don't win games. Some And Denver actually had a similar record in their nine games shooting below 60%. So for them, they weren't successful when they missed free throws. They just happened to be so good everywhere else that they ended up winning the title. Since 2022-2023, the Mavs have 10 games shooting below 60%, which was the nine games last year, and this one game this year. That's now second in the NBA behind, again, Denver of all teams, who has 11. Something to keep in mind that if it becomes a recurring pattern game by game by game by game, then it is, par- that it is very important for the Mavs to address. If it's a one-off and they improve, well, it was just a weird game where they weren't making free throws. Not the end of the world. So let's talk about the next game, the Mavs at the Bucks. The Mavs had two days of rest going into this game. And so much happened with this superstar matchup. You have Luca, you have Kyrie, and then on the other side, Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo. It lived up to the hype in terms of having your superstars come into one game and show out in many different ways. And boy, did Kyrie Irving show out. He scored a season-high 39 points. 33 of those points came in the second half. That's the most points in any half that he's had with the Mavericks. The second most points in any second half in his career. The third most points in any half of his career. And his fifth career half with 30 or more points. Scoring Savant. Kyrie Irving, he's outstanding. And it's fun to watch him go off the way that he did in that second half. Luka added 35 points combined with Kai for 74. They out-rebounded Milwaukee 49-41 and matched paint points at 56. On top of that, in the pregame show before this game, on Mavs Live, we had talked about the slipping defense of the Milwaukee Bucks. In 2022 and 2023, these are the three categories we're going to rank between last year and this year. Their defensive rating, opponent field goal percentage, and opponent fast break points. So last year, 2022-2023, the Bucks defensive rating was 110.9, which was fourth in the NBA. They held opponents to 45.6%, and that was second. 
and then they held their opponents to 13 fast break points, which was eighth. This season, however, the Bucks' defensive rating is, or at least going into that game, was 114.2, which was 21st. They held opponents to 45.9%, a little, just a tiny bit of an increase, but that bumped them all the way to 10th. And then they held their opponents to 16.3 fast break points per game, which was 25th. And yet the Mavs lost this game. The defensive slippage for the Bucks, when, when we're not really assigned to the Bucks, we don't watch as many Bucks games. I asked Brian Damaris if, about a specific play, and he, he admitted, I don't watch enough Bucks games, so I can't directly attribute it to one specific problem. I can't sit here and say, this is the one problem for the Bucks. What I can say is that these numbers wouldn't be as bad as they are if Drew Holiday were still on this team because he was their best perimeter defender. And a loss of a player of that caliber will force you to adjust on the defensive end. Your schemes won't be exactly the same. Your switches won't move the way that they normally do with a guy like Drew Holiday. Fighting over the top is not going to be as easy unless you have someone who can do it just like him. But that's just the eye test. Without actual evidence of watching that team, you're not going to be reporting as if it's the main factor. However, the slippage is caused by something, and it's just something to take note of. But the Mavs still lost this game, so why did they lose? What happened was the third quarter to the fourth quarter. The Mavs in the third quarter outscored Milwaukee 40-29, to out-rebounded them 14-5. to The Mavs also shot 12-15 of from two, including 18 paint points, and then shot 4-10 of from three. But in the fourth quarter, the Mavs were outscored 43-27, to a wider margin than they outscored the Bucs in the previous quarter. The Mavs were out-rebounded 14-8. The Mavs shot 8 of 10 from 2, but shot 3 of 15. 3 of 15 from 3. And these are the things that really make me mad. Within the first 13 shots of that quarter, the Mavs shot 4 for 4 from 2. And they shot 2 of 9 from 3. 2 of 9 from 3. Tim Hardaway Jr. made the team's first two three-point field goal attempts. And at that point, the lead was up to 11. After those two shots, Milwaukee went on a 19-9 run. The Mavs finished with a 60% fourth-quarter three-point rate. Now, I had briefly mentioned last week that for a team that has a three-point rate that is just below 50%. If you're shooting 60% from two and 40% from three, then you have an equal number of points coming from two and from three. If you're shooting below 40% from three, but above 60% from two, mathematically it would make sense to prioritize the two because 
you're going to generate more points in the long run. But then they have the Mavs have these quarters where they're insistent on shooting three after three after three after three after three after three after three. And they don't go in. And there isn't a two-point attempt in between. Situations like this baffle my mind because I understand when I, when I talk to people who've played the game, people who have been shooters in this game, shooter shoot, it's a confidence thing. They know that eventually it's going to go in. But when you combine shots not going in and the Bucks are running you in the paint to the point where you've lost your 11-point lead and it's now down to just one, you have to make an adjustment. There's just no way that you can sustain this idea that eventually your threes will come and somehow that will win you the game. You're actively losing the game and you have already proven success by shooting perfect from inside throughout that quarter. So why are you letting the lead slip away? It's very hard to put all of that into perspective as the game is going on. So I don't, I don't say that all the fault just goes on the players for jacking up threes. If you have an open three and you've been shooting well from three all game, naturally you feel like you're, you're going to make that three. But the numbers don't lie. Eventually, you're going to lose games if you keep shooting threes and miss them consecutively despite shooting well from inside. If you weren't shooting well from inside, that's a different story. But they were perfect from inside up until 5.17 remaining in the fourth quarter. They were perfect from inside, but only attempted four shots. This is just something to monitor as the team continues their season. More situations like this will help hopefully prepare them for recognition in how they can move within the two-point versus three-point battle. Will they prioritize actually going more inside? And not having Derek Lively on the floor throughout most of the second half contributed to this. But... Luca and Kai can get in the paint on their own. Tim Hardaway Jr. can finish at the basket. Although Grant Williams scores most of his points from outside, he can also finish at the basket. And Dwight Powell can also score at the rim from time to time. So then you also have Josh Green. And it's not just him, right? You, you have Jaden Hardy. There are multiple scoring options. Derek Jones Jr., the more that I think about it, the more that it makes sense that you have guys that can actually get to the rim and make these twos. It's not hard. It's just, it has to be intentional. The three-point identity where you live and die by the three can be the difference between winning games here and there throughout the season. And then when, season, when the season ends, you're going to be thinking about 
a couple games that may change your seeding. For the Mavs, they were only a few games out of the play-in. A lot of those can be attributed to free throws, to games where they just tried shooting from three, but they were shooting well from two and chose not to. If you catch this early on, if you recognize this habit early on, it can be corrected, it can be fixed, it can be addressed throughout the rest of the season. And then the team can be a bit more balanced. I don't mind the Mavs shooting threes because they shoot really well from three. It's just that when you know you're in a bad spell, when you notice you're in a bad stretch and you're shooting well from inside, just take the points inside. Do whatever it takes to win the game. All right. I had briefly mentioned Derek Lively was not on the floor that much in the second half. He only played about nine minutes and 29 seconds out of a possible 24 in the second half due to foul trouble. Picked up two fouls in the third quarter and then one in the fourth. So him not being on the floor did affect the Mavs' rhythm, at least in the fourth quarter. Although the Mavs did play really well in the third quarter, scoring 40 points there. So again, Derek Lively is a rookie. He's still trying to figure out how to adjust to referees' calls, and every referee crew is going to be different. Every game is going to be different as to how that game will be called. So he just has to adjust and get better at adjusting. He's had games where he's done really well, some games where he's been close to fouling out. So for him, he will figure it out. It's just very, very early on. The Mavs are only 14 games into the season. It's nothing to worry about for him. Something that the Mavs do need to worry about, though, is that they allowed 43 points on 14 of 21 shooting in the fourth quarter. So I'm going to break it down by not full zones, but just sections, right? So two-point field goals, the Bucks were eight for eight, right? They were 100%. They shot six of 13 from three and nine of 10 from the free throw line. 15 points came from Giannis, 10 from Dame, and eight points from Pat Connaughton. So you have 33 points coming from those three guys and then 10 points from everyone else. Giannis essentially bullied the Mavs in the paint. He got wherever he wanted. He scored a majority of his baskets in the painted area. It was a stat that we kept up with and actually put on the broadcast multiple times throughout the game within within the halftime stats, even in the final stats. There's just a lot of... Giannis lives in the paint. He scores the most paint points in the league by a comfortable margin. And his night was nothing short of special. So Giannis had 40 points and 15 rebounds in that game against the Mavericks. It was his third 40-point double-double and his first 40-point, 15-rebound game this season. It was his 10th career 40-point, 15-rebound game, and it was his first since February 2nd of this year. 
In the first half, he shot 10 of 11, finished 16 of 18 in the paint. That's just in the paint. When you're that efficient in the paint, when no one can stop you in the paint, no matter if you throw Derek Lively, Derek Jones Jr., Grant Williams, does not matter who is on you, you're scoring in the paint. It is very hard to stop. So the, the issues that the Mavs faced in this game may not be the reason that they lose other games or they might not even lose other games because some teams don't have a Giannis Antetokounmpo. But when you play superstars and when you get to play the harder teams and you want to find ways to win, you do have to find ways around a guy like Giannis, a guy like Damian Lillard. So for the Mavs, one blip in the radar. They only play the Bucs twice a year. It's not like they're going to have a series against them within the first three rounds because it's East versus West. But it is something of note, something to note, I should say, especially when they play superstars in other teams, such as the Sacramento Kings, who visited the Dallas Mavericks when the Mavs were on a second night of a back-to-back after a four-game road trip in three cities. The Sacramento offense, led by De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis, shot 17 of 40 from three, which was 42.5%. That's really good for an NBA team. And they scored 58 paint points, which was 12 more than the Mavs. So they outscored them really well there. And then they had 22 second chance points, which was 16 more than the Mavericks had. The Mavs only led for a minute and 31 seconds. And the main category that the Mavs were actually successful in were the points off turnovers where they outscored Sacramento 17 to six. This was one of those games where it was noticeable. The Mavs were tired. They didn't have their legs under them. Even if they did, like they shot well enough to win some games, but Sacramento was just way too good. They were way too accurate. This was more of a game where you couldn't beat the schedule. And for the Mavs, it was, quote-unquote, a scheduled loss. I wouldn't say that that any loss is a scheduled loss, like they were intentionally losing. They looked like they were trying to win the game. But in the second half, they just ran out of gas, as Brian Damaris was describing on Mavs Live that night. So if there's not much to take away from that game, we can at least look at the Mavs three-point rate versus the Milwaukee Bucks, where they really did try to win that game. And the Mavs had a three-point rate entering that game, the Milwaukee game, of 48.3%. That's the second highest in the NBA behind Boston, who has 49.2%, or who had 49.2%. Currently, the Mavs still have the second highest three-point rate at 47.4%. Boston is still in first at 48.8%, so they've both dropped a little bit. Now, I broke this down where quarter by quarter and category by category, you can see where the Mavs excelled, where they struggled, and how it resulted. In the first quarter... The Mavs' two-point field goal percentage was 42.9%. 
three-point field goal percentage was 55.6%, and the three-point rate was 30%. Then their point differential in that quarter was plus one. So they made a lot of threes, missed more twos than normal, but they didn't shoot as many threes. This was that quarter where you could take more threes because you were shooting much better from three than you were from two. And that might have helped them in that quarter more so than it did in, or at least more so than it would from two. In the second quarter, the Mavs shot 60% from two, 30.8% from three, with a 56.5% three-point rate. Remember that threshold, 60% from two, 40% from three, at a 50% three-point rate means that's even on both sides. If you're higher from two and lower from three, your three-point rate should be below 50%. That was not the case. The Mavs three-point rate was above 50%, and their point differential ended up being minus three. In the third quarter, everything just didn't matter. The Mavs shot 80% from two, 40% from three, and had a 40% three-point rate. It was their best quarter, plus 11 on the point differential. But then in the fourth quarter, their two-point field goal percentage was actually still 80%. But their three-point field goal percentage fell to 20%. And somehow, the three-point rate jumped up to 60%. The point differential was minus 16. Again, the numbers don't lie. At some point, you cannot keep shooting from three if you're missing them and you're making so many from two and think you're going to win the game. I'm not going to get into it again because you'd already heard me rant about it for 10 minutes. So let's move on to the New Orleans Pelicans and the Oklahoma City Thunder. In the next segment, we're going to break down both of their week fours. And my goodness, these teams are looking resurgent. I should say, those teams are resurging. That's next. Okay, let's break down the Pels and the Thunder in both of their week fours. First off, the Pelicans got back to 500, and in the last couple of weeks, the Pels' three-point defense and their paint defense have been a point of contention. I'm going to break down more of their three-point defense over their last three games, where against Denver, they held Denver to 10 of 40, which is 25%, from three, and the Pels won that game 115 to 110. They did lose to Minnesota by one, And Minnesota did shoot well from three. They shot 13 of 31, which was 41.9%. Lost with a final score of 121 to 120. And then against Sacramento, who they caught on a second night of a back-to-back, much like the Kings caught the Mavs on a second night of a back-to-back, the Pels held the Kings to 11 of 45 from three, which was 24.4%. And they won the game 129 to 93. So among that three-point defense, Let's break down quarter by quarter throughout the season, the Pels defense. In the first quarter, the Pels held opponents to 31.7% on 9.9 three-point field goal attempts. In the second quarter, it was 27.7% on 11.4 attempts. In the third quarter, again, that spike, they 
allowed 36.2% on 9.3 attempts, and then falls back down a little bit in the fourth quarter at 32% on 9.1 attempts. Something to keep in mind, though, in the Pels' last seven games, they've allowed 15 of 65 from three, which is 23.1%. So the trend is still the same. They they hold opponents to poor three-point shooting in the first quarter, even poor three-point shooting in the second. Then in the third, teams seem to be at their best. And then in the fourth, they fall back just a little bit. And all those, although those percentages dropped, each one of them dropped by a little bit, the trend is still the same. However, in their last seven games, that 23.1% fourth quarter th- opponent three-point field goal percentage is important to note because the return of Herbert Jones has been nothing but extraordinary. Because since his return from injury, November 14th versus the Mavericks. Herb Jones is averaging 14.5 points, 59.4% field goal percentage, 54.5% three-point field goal percentage, 87.5% from the free throw line, five rebounds, five assists, 2.8 steals, and 1.8 blocks per game. Last week I mentioned he is the defensive anchor on the perimeter for this team. And although I haven't been able to watch as many Pelicans games in the last week, him being on the floor, at least from what I've seen from him over the last two, two and a half seasons, him being on the floor helps the Pelicans way more than him missing games. And his return has resurged this team back into a spot where they've basically put behind that five-game losing streak and found themselves in a spot where they can salvage the early portion of the season. In that Minnesota game, he did foul out. He fouled Rudy Gobert with 29 seconds left. Rudy missed both free throws. But then after Brandon Ingram hit one of two free throws, Carl Anthony Towns hit the game-winning shot, and then B.I. missed his last attempt. And so that was how that game went final, and the Pels lost by one. But Herb Jones being on the floor has only helped the Pels. So who got next? The Pels play the Kings again, but this time the Kings are rested. Remember, the Kings were on a second night of a back-to-back in their previous game after beating the Mavs in Dallas. So this time around, the Pels do have to know this team is going to come with a vengeance. De'Aaron Fox is probably going to go off. It's going to be very hard to limit Sacramento to that level of three-point shooting that the Pelicans have been holding opponents to, considering how well Sacramento shoots the three. But if the Pelicans' defense can hold on, and if they can put... DeMontis Sabonis in foul trouble, right? That matchup between him and Jonas Valanciunas is going to be very interesting. Whoever can be on the floor longer, who can, whoever can affect the paint more is probably going to win that matchup. Now, let's move on to the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
The Thunder are on a five-game win streak. I, I don't get to work the Thunder in a week, and suddenly they're one of the best teams in the NBA. They've beaten the Phoenix Suns in Phoenix. They've beaten the Spurs. They've beaten the Warriors twice in San Francisco. And they've beaten the Portland Trailblazers in Portland. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is on a tear. During this five-game win streak, he's averaging 31 points per game, 56.4% shooting from the floor, 45% from three, 97% from the free throw line, five rebounds, 5.2 assists, 2.8 steals. What is this man on? I don't understand. This this guy, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, SGA as they call him in OKC and across the NBA, this dude is something special. He's willing this team to win. He took over in that overtime against the Warriors that Chet Holmgren forced with a crazy three that it looked like he was ready to shoot from backwards. Like he was completely flipped around, got his three launched, turned around, and then let it go. And then Shea was like, I got the overtime. This team, this player, is not to be trifled with. This season, SGA is shooting, is scoring 29.6 points per game, which is sixth in the NBA. He also averages two and a half steals per game. That's first in the NBA. Leads the NBA and drives at 21 per game. The next most is LaMelo Ball at 18 and a half. No one in the NBA has more than 20 except Shea. 20 drives except Shea. So he really disrupts defenses by penetrating the defense and forcing any kind of double team. If they double him, well, he can pass it out to shooters out on the wing. If they don't double him, he's going to beat you one-on-one. Very much like Luka, but he has, as Nancy Lieberman would know this more than I would, but the way that Shea plays, he's so fast. He's stronger than he looks. He's nifty. He's crafty at the, um, at the rim. He's just one of those players that you can't stop. Much like Giannis in the paint, you can't really stop Shea. The only one who can stop him is himself. So the Thunder will go as far as Shea will take them. But let's look at his surrounding pieces. Or at least his most hyped surrounding piece in Chet Holmgren. When he played Victor Wembanyama, it wasn't as big of a matchup as we thought it would be. However... In his last three games, Chet is on fire. He's scoring 21.7 points per game, shooting 68.6% from the floor, 44.4% from three, 92.9% from the free throw line. He's rebounding 8.7, 2.3 assists per game, two blocks per game. And he's only fouling at a rate of 1.7 per game. Normally when you're a big guy, and you have to protect the protect the paint. You're going to foul a little more often, much like Herb has been fouling a little bit more than he would like to in his since his return. Chet is not fouling in his last 3 games. That's that's the mark of an efficient defender, the mark of a of a really good defender, one who can time getting his hands on the ball, one who can really affect offenses without putting his team in bad situations. So much of this streak, as much as it has to do with Shea, has to do with Chet rising to another level. And it's exciting to see where he is now, and I want to see where he's going to go next. 
This season as a whole, Chet is averaging 17 points per game, second among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama, averaging 2.1 blocks per game, which is fifth in the NBA, second among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama. This time, though, he has five double-doubles, and that is tied for first among rookies with Victor Wembanyama. So this race is getting a little bit interesting. It's not clear-cut that Victor might win the Rookie of the Year. Chet Holmgren is making a case. Hey, I know I was out all of last season, but I'm not to be played with. This man could somehow, if he continues this stretch and Victor doesn't come back and resurge the way that he did, scoring 38 points within the first couple weeks, Chet could win Rookie of the Year. It's not a far-fetched argument. The Thunder as a team are exciting as well because they block at a rate of 5.8 blocks per game. That's eighth in the NBA. They score, they shoot 50.3% from the floor. That's second in the NBA, 41% from three, which is first in the NBA. And uh, they are the only team that shoots above 40% from three as of right now, as of this recording. They are also leading the league in free throw percentage at 86.7%. So again, they're shooting. Remember last season, as I said at the very beginning of this episode, last season, the Oklahoma City Thunder shot 62.5% in their restricted area. That was 30th in the NBA. They're currently 65.6%, which is a little bit of a drop from last week at 65.9%, but they're still 18th in the NBA. From the mid-range, though, they have improved. They are shooting 47.1% at fifth in the NBA, and their pace is now 101.49 possessions per game, which is seventh in the NBA. They are now tied sixth in the NBA with 8.6 steals, and they are completely sixth in the NBA with 19.5 points off turnovers. So this team, they're fast, they're gritty, they play defense, they shoot the lights out, they have a superstar, they have a great rookie. They have great pieces. They're 10 and four in the West. That's better. That's the best of the three teams that I'm covering right now. So it, again, it is not far-fetched that the Thunder will surprise a lot of people that Chet could win rookie of the year at the end of the season. There's still a lot of basketball to be played, but keep your eyes out for the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're not coming. They're here. Last but not least, we are going to talk about the in-season tournament because we have some teams that have clinched groups and we'll check out the upcoming topics going into next week. That's up next. All right, let's talk about the in-season tournament standings and upcoming matchups and topics. First... In West Group B, where the Mavericks and the Pelicans reside, the Pelicans actually lead this group now. They are 2-1 with a plus 23 point differential. Remember, point differential is is a tiebreaker when it comes to who gets the top spot in the group and how the wild card is going to shake up. So the Pels are at first in West Group B, 2-1, plus 23. Denver is right behind them at 2 and 1 plus 9. The Rockets are 1 and 1 and minus 3. 
At fourth, the Dallas Mavericks are one and two minus 14. And in fifth, the Clippers are one and two at minus 15. And then in West Group C, where the Thunder are, in first place is Sacramento at 2-0 plus 16. Then right behind them, Minnesota is also 2-0, but plus 10. In third place, the Golden State Warriors are 1-1, minus 1. And then in fourth, the Thunder are 1-2, plus 27. The Spurs are in fifth. They're 0-3, minus 52. They have actually already been eliminated from knockout round contention. So now that we've broken down those standings, let's talk about who's clinched so far. Only two teams have clinched a spot in the knockout rounds. That is, or that first team, the Indiana Pacers, they went 3-0, and they have a point differential of plus 16. No other team in East Group A has three wins so far. Everyone has already lost a game except Indiana. So Indiana will take this game. They still have one more game against Detroit. And then in West Group A, the Los Angeles Lakers are actually done with all of their in-season tournament games. As of last night, I'm recording this Wednesday, November 22nd. As of last night, the Lakers beat the Utah Jazz to clinch West Group A with a 4-0 record and a plus 74-point differential. So they will be in the knockout rounds. Next week, when we talk about the knockout rounds, I'll be working on Monday and Tuesday. So by Tuesday... Those games, will once they're finished, Wednesday I'll record and I'll have the entire knockout round bracket set. So we'll break down exactly how those next phases of the in-season tournament are going to go. But as of right now, that's where the in-season tournament stands. For the Mavs, their remaining in-season tournament games, remember it's just one, Tuesday, November 28th at home versus the Houston Rockets at 7.30 p.m. Central. For the Pelicans, Their last game is Friday, November 24th at the LA Clippers at 9.30 p.m. Central. And then for the Thunder, their last game is Tuesday, November 28th at the Minnesota Timberwolves at 7 p.m. Central. And remember, next week, not only the in-season tournament, we will recap week five, talk about these teams again. So I will be able to work Mavs, Pels, and Thunder within the next week. I'll have more stuff about them as we get into the next week. And then as I do every week, let's just briefly talk about the Cowboys and recap what they've done so far. They've beaten the Carolina Panthers who only have one win so far on the season. And the Cowboys host the Washington commanders at home for Thanksgiving The Cowboys are about to enter a home stretch. They're currently on a 12-game home win streak. So for them, it's a matter of, let's see how long we can extend this win streak. I don't know if it'll get snapped by Philadelphia, or I don't know if it'll continue throughout the rest of the season. But the Cowboys are a formidable team. It's just a matter of execution, right? So they've played teams that have not been great and they've excelled. And then after they get through this Washington game, when they run into that stretch of Philadelphia and Buffalo and Miami and so on and so forth, 
we'll really see what this team is made of based on how they play in those games. And even if they make the playoffs, you know, making the playoffs is, for them is not going to be the threshold of, yeah, we're a successful team. It's how well can we match up against the teams that have caused trouble for us or teams that have been hard to beat for many other teams in the NFL. So that's just something to look for this Thanksgiving. The National NBA tip-off. On Wednesday, November 22nd, the Bucks and the Celtics face off at 7.30, 6.30 Central on ESPN, followed by the Warriors and Suns at 10.9 Central. Then Friday, November 24th, it's an in-season tournament day. The Heat will play the Knicks at 7.30, 6.30 Central on ESPN, followed by the Spurs and the Warriors at 10.9 Central. And then on Saturday, November 25th, the Mavs and the Clippers will play at 10.30, 9.30 Central on NBA TV, Valley Sports Southwest, and KTLA. Not Valley Sports SoCal, but KTLA. And then among the local NBA tip-off, we have Wednesday, November 22nd, the Mavs will play the Lakers at 10.30, 9.30 Central on Spectrum Sportsnet and Valley Sports Southwest, so watch us there. And then... Friday, November 24th, it's an in-season tournament game between the Pelicans and the Clippers at 10.30, 9.30 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports SoCal. And then Saturday, November 25th, the Sixers and the Thunder will play at 5.4 Central on NBC Sports Philadelphia and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And finally, the Pelicans will play the Jazz at 9.30, 8.30 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans. And KJZZ, or KJazz, I don't know what they call it in Utah, but their local TV station. Before we go, I want to give you my thanks for watching or listening to these episodes. We're five, five episodes in, past 50 impressions coming up on 75, uh, downloads and views all across all of these platforms. And I want to just give my appreciation to everyone who has been consuming this so far, who's been enjoying it, the feedback that I've been getting. Um, it is for me a sense of gratitude that I get to be able to do this kind of job, but that I also have found a way to do my own thing with getting this type of content out to you guys. And with that, I would like to say happy Thanksgiving to you all. Enjoy your holiday with your family, find something to be thankful for. And I will see you next week. That's it for me. I am your host, Estrella Johannes, signing off.